Hey there, and welcome back to Think Aloud with Dr. G. I am Dr. Lisa Gorin, and I am so glad you're here so we can think aloud together. Think Aloud is a strategy teachers use to model thinking, learning, and understanding. It's like eavesdropping on what's happening inside someone's brain. Today, we are thinking aloud with Dr. Jessica Tost. Jess is an associate professor in the Department of Special Education at the University of Texas at Austin and a fellow of the Reading Institute within the Meadows Center for Preventing Educational Risk. Jess is also the current president of the Division for Learning Disabilities, DLD. Her research interests are related to intensive interventions for students with reading disabilities, with a particular focus on database decision-making processes and motivation. Her story is inspiring and thought-provoking, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome back. Today, I get to talk with Jessica Tost, and I'm so excited. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Lisa. <laughs> Thank you so much nice for having to see this you conversation. And speak with you. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Um, you and I know each other through the Division for Learning Disabilities, DLD, and you are the current, like, is it official? You're the current president? It's, a, it's official. Yes. It's current official. As the beginning of January, yeah. Wonderful. Well, congratulations to you. And I am excited to serve with you in that division. Uh, but tell me a little bit about you. Kind of give me your, like, I'm in higher ed, 30-second elevator speech of who you are and what you do. Sure. So I am an associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin in the Department of Special Education. Um, I'm also a research affiliate with the Meadows Center for Preventing Educational Risk here in the College of Education and the Texas Center for Equity Promotion, also in our College of Education. Um, and my research is focused on um, supporting students' reading development. So specifically, I think of methods for intensifying intervention for students with disabilities who experience persistent reading challenges. Within that realm of intensifying interventions, I really think about um, intensifying interventions themselves. So especially in adding and attending to psychosocial components that can improve our interventions and students' response to our interventions. And then the other way I think about intensifying interventions is um, really focused on understanding teachers' database decision-making and supporting their expertise in database instruction so that they can intensify and individualize interventions for their students. That, there's a whole lot there to unpack. Yeah. My goodness. <laughs> you do so many things. But this idea of intensifying interventions, so you're not really focused in on like identifying which interventions work. Like Other people have already kind of figured out some evidence-based practices, and you're really focusing then on how to make them work more specifically for certain kids or to make them even more effective? What do you mean by intensifying? Yeah, both, I think. So um, really thinking of um, building on to what we know in reading intervention specifically is what I think about, Build, building on to what we know of good evidence-based practices and good evidence-based interventions and thinking of the ways that those intervention can, the interventions can be more effective for a greater number of students. And I, I think a lot about the students who really need something more than what mm. those interventions, even our best high quality interventions, they need something more than what that's providing. 
And so I, like I was saying, those two different ways I think about that. One is in thinking about um, designing interventions. So I do, I do intervention development work, but really sort of take really strong components of, of evidence-based reading intervention and add and integrate other components into those interventions. And so I think a lot about psychosocial processes and how things like motivation and self-determined <laughs> learning can really impact the way not only students, but humans um, engage with learning environments and engage with um, learning opportunities. And so thinking of how we can really bring students into um, the interventions by attending to things like motivation and self-determined learning Mm -hmm. within the interventions themselves. And then the other way is thinking of how teachers can do this data-based instruction so that they can make really well-informed decisions about how to modify or adjust the interventions um, and hopefully the really good evidence-based interventions that they're already delivering, how they can adjust those to meet the needs of their students, whatever those needs may be. I love everything about that because I think about when we teach future teachers, for example, kind of trying to get this idea about what are evidence-based practices and how do you do this, they feel as if, though, they're kind of compartmentalized and siloed and you're adding all of these things on, either I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. And then we live in a culture of kind of either or, like we like to categorize and divide things out, but you're really talking about a yes and kind of a conversation. And there's some real power there. So, yes, we're working on these yeah. interventions and we're making them more engaging so the students are motivated to participate in them and learn. So, Right. Absolutely. I like that the yes and improv approach to, to most things in life. But um, definitely I think about that in terms of designing interventions and working with teachers and delivering those interventions. It's not a I don't think an approach to like we're doing this wrong or we need something totally different is is the way to get where we need to get. I think it's how can we, you know, adjust or, you know, shift what we're already doing, make it better. And sometimes we, sometimes we come up with a solution that what we're doing was not effective and we need to do something totally different. That's usually not a good place to start. And we're certainly not attacking the teacher who's doing the best with the knowledge that they have. You know, I think of the yeah, Maya Angelou quote yeah. that I, I paraphrase all the time, like, when you know better, you do better. And so we're constantly learning how to know better as a field, but also as individual teachers. So there's some real power there. Yeah, so. absolutely. And my, um, I have a, a development par- project funded by the Institute of Education Sciences called Project Expert that's focused on um, building a teacher professional learning program to build expertise in database decision making. And the approach we take to our whole professional learning program and the coaching we provide is really not, it's very individualized for teachers. So it really isn't telling them, here's what you need to do. Here's what this looks like. Here's what you should be doing for your student. It's building their expertise so that they can make those decisions um, and really supporting them in self-monitoring the decisions they're making around student data and how that informs their interventions and then building up the knowledge and skills they they may feel like they need or don't have yet in order to make those good decisions. I am 100% here for this. You are teaching them the problem-solving, critical thinking, self-advocacy skills that we want our students to learn. Absolutely. That I want everybody to have. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. This makes me incredibly happy. And I feel like we could do this for a full hour. But 
I'm going to be aware of my time today. And I want to talk about your educational journey. So are you one of those people who like was birthed knowing that you wanted to be an educator? Are you somebody who came into this field kind of in a, a very winding road path? Like, tell me about your educational journey. Feel free to start as early or late as you wish. I'll start a little earlier than I was thinking I was going to start. But um, <laughs> so my my mother was a, a educational assistant. So an EA in in Ontario, Canada is where I grew up and where she worked. And so um, she was not a teacher, but growing up, she was, to me, she, she was a teacher. Wow. Um, from very young, I was very into teaching. I did a lot of teaching play with my friends and with my stuffed animals and toys. <laughs> I started a, a library in my garage over the love summer it. where I like actually made library cards for people in the neighborhood to choose books. I had a lot of rules related to the library, so <laughs> that might have uh, impacted how successful it was, but I really wanted it to work. As I got older into high school, I really, I just, you know, I don't think I decided, but I really did not want to be a teacher. That was, I, I don't know if that was informed by, you know, I don't want to do the same thing that my parent is doing. Um, I don't know if it's because the things I was, I was interested in learning about just didn't maybe fall into what I thought becoming a teacher looked like. Right. Um, so I started undergrad. I feel people are always surprised when I say I started undergrad and I was majoring in religious studies. And for those who don't know anything about religious studies programs at the undergrad level, it really is a program very heavily seeped in critical thinking. So a lot of courses learning about world religions, but the majority of the courses were learning about, not even learning about, thinking about ethics and right how that applies in different cultural and religious and social contexts. And so that knowledge of world religion sort of informed these bigger conversations around, around ethics. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was majoring in religious studies. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed my classes. Um, but I decided a couple of years into the, into my program to take a year off of school, a year off of college. And in retrospect, probably the, you know, the reason for that at the time was a couple of things. One, I was just like, not sure what I wanted to do. And so I thought <laughs> I could work and make money. I also had moved to another province in Canada. And so if I mm -hmm. took a year off and went back, I would then be able to pay in province tuition, which was lower. Right. Nice. But really in retrospect, I think it's that I had found school very easy up until college. I didn't have to put a lot of effort into studying. And I think when I got to college, it was a little bit of a culture shock that I didn't know how to study. I really didn't know how to to read dense material and organize that when I was learning so many different things at the same time and so much of it was new to me. And so I really was sort of like, I think I need to figure out what I'm doing with my life. And so I had already been working at the YMYWCA in Montreal is where I li lived at this point. I went to McGill University. And so I'd already been working there and um, had started being involved in the coordination of our children's programs at the, mm -hmm. the YMYWCA there. I took a year off and coordinated the children's programs at this Y Center. And so that included oh. running our after-school programs and um, our summer day camp programs. 
And we had a, a really amazing summer day camp program, which was the only, at the time, inclusive day camp program in the city. So where children with disabilities could enroll for our day camp program in the same way that other kids enrolled for our day camp program. And that we offer shadows or aids, the word we use at the time was shadows, to, to be involved in the camp program and ensure that their, their needs were met and they were able to access um, what we were doing in our programs. During that year... I mean, I essentially was involved in education full-time during that year. <laughs> I remember one of the parents of our uh, students who came to after-school program, we were doing a science experiment one day or something, and they said to me, oh, when are you going to be certified to be a teacher? And I said, I'm not going to be a teacher. And they said, why not? <laughs> and I was like, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, because it seems like mm-hmm. that's what I like to do if I'm like left to my own devices that's what I choose to do and so when I went back after my year off I applied to transfer to um, our education program a bachelor of education and so I did in the first semester I went back I I switched my I did added a minor in educational psychology so I could begin Mm -hmm. taking more education courses and then I officially transferred to the education program um, and finished that program. Oh my gosh, that's fun. That was a little bit of a tangent, but... (laughs) But it really shows that your skills, your talents, your areas of interest, you may not have had the label for them or known exactly how to use them. Like Most people wouldn't think, oh, to become a teacher, I should go coordinate a day program. It really does utilize some of those same skills. I love how your story is unique, but it has some themes to it. Like I can completely connect to, I school was easy. I mean, I got to college and... I wasn't any less smart, but the rules had changed and the expectations. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And I did not know. I did not know what the rules were in those spaces. So, oh my gosh. Okay. Right. I was going to add to you, I'm also a first generation college student. So I truly didn't know what the rules of college were Sure. um, or what things I could ask or what things I was, were expected of me. Um, and I kind of, I, I never shied away from asking questions. So I luckily had many people who answered questions for me and sort of learned over over the years. Absolutely. Well, I think that's pretty powerful too. Like I'm not first generation college, but I didn't have any supports on what college meant or how to go. Like I, there was an expectation you will go to college. And that was the extent of the support I had. So I didn't know like how to navigate those spaces or what questions to ask or what the rules were. So yeah, very, very interesting. Like you learn a lot in those times. Okay, so after yeah, undergraduate yeah. in Canada, then was that an initial teaching certification? Did you begin teaching right away or what was next? I I did, yeah. And so it was a, a- a bachelor of education program that led to directly to certification. I was trained in elementary education. We didn't have a special ed program. The education system works a little different in terms of certification in Canada, but without knowing, I like, I exactly that I wanted to be in special education. I know that I really wanted to work more in settings where students had a wide range of needs. I knew that from from my other experiences in the world and in working, I knew that I was very invested in working with students with disabilities and ensuring that students with disabilities had access to all of the things that they should have access to. Mm -hmm. And so in all of my placements in my undergrad program, I I requested being in special ed settings or what were were considered more alternative teaching settings. And so I was able to, to do that in my training. And 
Then I ended up, I taught for a number of years. I taught a high-risk school, an identified high-risk school. I taught kindergarten. And then I also taught at, we had the school in Montreal that was, they had a program that was called a reverse integration program. And so it was a school for, it was the equivalent of, of, of here, a public charter. And it was a school for students with more moderate to severe disabilities. And they had a program where other students from community schools could apply to attend the school for a year in a reverse integrated program. Oh, wow. And so the idea was really building social, emotional awareness and intelligence amongst other kids um, in this learning environment. And so I taught there and it was a really cool, really cool setting. We have small classes, I think had like 12 students and about usually it was either a 50-50 or like 60-40. Some of them were from um, community schools who were attending the school and some of them were students that attended that school full time. Oh, wow. That's Um, a great combination. Okay. And then the, a lot of my teaching was in the last year of my, well, the summer before my last year of undergrad, one of my professors who taught our learning difficulties course sort of said in class, like we, you know, she worked at a private center in town that ran, that did assessments and services for individuals with learning disabilities. And they ran an intensive summer reading program that was every day for, for, you know, kids who were, who had experienced reading challenges. And it was a three week program. So quite intensive with, with working with, with kids delivering interventions. And the way they ran the program is that they hired a number of what they called novice teachers and novice teachers were people who didn't yet have the expertise to deliver these reading interventions, but they got trained and then got to co-teach alongside other experts for the, the, the length of the program and learn these skills. So um, wow. When I learned about this, I right away was like, I want to do this because I have had no courses in my undergrad that have taught me how <laughs> to teach reading. And all of the settings I had been in, students did not find reading, not all of them, but a lot of students did not find reading an easy thing. Right. And I realized that I did not know how to teach them well. I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants. And so I actually spent the summer right before my last year of undergrad in that program, then spent a second summer in that program the year after, and then was hired by that program once I was certified and worked as a reading specialist in with that center for until I left Montreal. So almost seven years. Wow. And I offer, I did individual remediation, small group remediation, the summer programs. And then in my last several years there, I was in my doc program at the same time. In my last several years there, I started summer, sorry, not summer, Saturday reading groups because I realized I really valued teaching in small groups. And mm-hmm. without having theory to back it up at the time, I really thought that <laughs> I felt that students were were learning better in small groups, that they were more engaged and yeah. they were making more progress. And so I kind of made an argument to run these Saturday groups and we got people registered and I ran those for several years um, working at that center. You are not a person who does one thing at a time. Like This is a very busy no. life you need. <laughs> That kind of explains how you're so involved in everything now. Okay, I'm starting to see the connection. (laughs) (laughs) So you did all of this while you were doing your doctoral work. 
Throughout my, so I did my undergrad, had a taught for a bit, and then I continued my master's. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a master's of art, so I did a research master's. I, I think I had decided decided by that point, I'd started doing some research in my undergrad program, and I was really interested in research. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to do an MA with a thesis because I knew, I don't think I knew yet that I would go on to a, a PhD, but I knew that I really liked research. And so mm-hmm. um, I did my MA and then I ended up staying at McGill for my PhD as well, for a variety of reasons, but I ended up staying there for my PhD as well. So I taught evenings and then every weekend I, I worked at the center um, wow. as a reading specialist throughout my master's and PhD. My goodness. Okay. I'm just impressed with how much you did during that time and, and those experiences would be so great. So your PhD then, what, I know you're no longer in Montreal because you just said you're in Texas. So kind of how did you transition? Yeah. Well, so during my doc program, I applied and was very privileged to receive a Fulbright fellowship. It was a special program called the Canada-US Fulbright Scholar Program. And I applied for that because in my department, I did my PhD in educational psychology, and my department did not have coursework or folks who really did intervention research. Sure. And I knew, without fully understanding what intervention research was at the time, I knew that was what I wanted to do. I was an interventionist, mm-hmm. and so I was really interested in how to do that well from a research yeah. perspective. And so I was really privileged to get this Fulbright Fellowship. I spent a year at the Florida Center for Reading Research. Okay. And when I applied for it, Joe Torgerson had written me a letter of support saying that I, if I got it, I could go to FCRR and and do my fellowship. When my fellowship got funded, like nine months, eight months later, I don't know, however long later, Joe was retiring. He had just announced that he was retiring. And so when I contacted him to make, say, guess what? This got funded and talk about plans. He said, I'm going to connect you with a new faculty member in our, in FCRR, who's amazing. You really like her. Her name's Carol Connor. I spoke with Carol a couple of times. She was, she was so enthusiastic to have me come and work with her team. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a year at FCRR really learning reading intervention research. And I feel like learning from, from the best of the best um, about the greats, how, right? to do, yeah. how to do really good education research. And then when I finished my PhD, I felt like I still needed to learn more. I knew at that point that the field I wanted to be in, the research field I wanted to be in was special education. Um, I knew that that's where the work that I did as a practitioner and that I was interested in as a researcher was happening. And so I didn't feel like I was going to be competitive, even though I had a really good publication record. I'd been very productive as a doc student. I just didn't feel like I'd be competitive in those pro in the program that I was interested mm-hmm. in. And so I applied for the Canadian government has a um, federal funding agencies. We have a postdoc program that you apply for individually, unlike in the US at IES, the faculty apply for the postdocs and then hold the, the postdoc position. So I applied for a postdoc, was also really privileged to receive a two-year postdoc and worked with Doug Fuchs at Vanderbilt for two years. After being at Vanderbilt, I applied for jobs. And I think from the first year I was at Vanderbilt, Doug kept saying, like, I think there's going to be a job at Texas that's opening up. And I was like, as a Canadian, I was just like, I know nothing about Texas. I mean, it's like tumbleweeds and like big hat. I was like, I don't know what happens in Texas. And I kept thinking like, well, that, you know, I would, that would be strange to go to Texas. I've never thought of this ever. And lo and behold, a job did open up when I was on the market and I applied for it. And the, I guess the rest is history. I got the oh, position well. and I, this is my... 
10th year at UT now. 10 years. Wow. Yeah. It worked though. Starting my 10th year. So nine yeah. full years. On to my 10th. <laughs> I'm in my 10th. Like, I feel like you should get to celebrate yeah. the beginning of that. Yeah, that is wonderful. Yeah. I'll oh celebrate gosh, like the end of a full decade at the, the right? Yes, yeah. that is so great. Well, so your story has all of those pieces of like, you were drawn to specific things. You were drawn to certain kinds of work and maybe not knowing the names of it and knowing how to do it. And I love when you said, I knew I wanted to work in intervention, like research and intervention, even though I didn't really know what it was like, that's right. Yeah. So very similar. Like so many people can say like, I had this idea, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure what it was. So finding those connections, finding the people who help you along the path. I mean, it's not serendipitous, like, and it's not just coincidence or even just random. Like there, there were definitely some pieces there that connected for you. Absolutely. And I have, and my, you know, my advisor during my, my doc program and the the research team I worked on, we didn't do reading intervention research. My advisor had been doing learning disability research. So mm-hmm. educational psychology based um, learning disability research, really interested in, in psychological factors related to learning disabilities, mm-hmm. which is probably why my, where my like depth of interest in that comes from as well. But she really transitioned quite early in my master's program to getting several grants and focusing a lot on non-suicidal self-injury. And so um, really studying um, one of her doctoral students and um, she published one of the first studies that looked at self-injury in a community-based sample of adolescents. And up until that point, this was in the early aughts. And Mm -hmm. up until that point, people really thought self-injury was a very clinical behavior. It was something that happened in a clinical setting. And they found that a very high, which is probably not surprising to people now, 20 something years later, but a very high percentage of high school students who were in typical high schools did not have clinical level, Mm -hmm. like, like mental health issues were reported having engaged in self-injurious behavior in some way. And so I actually got to work. I published a lot. My CV is interesting. I have to go way back. I have a lot of publications on non-suicidal self-injury in that area. And I really tried to focus a lot on like being in schools, like what that means in schools. And even though that wasn't exactly the research I knew I wanted to end up focusing on, the training I got as a researcher in terms of how to run large projects, how to manage data, um, how to run a team, how to ask important questions in really, Mm -hmm. in ways that are very strongly theoretically and empirically based. I feel like that training was invaluable to, I don't know if I would have been able to realize what type of research I wanted to be doing if I hadn't got such a strong base in understanding research to begin right. with. Oh, that's wonderful. And you talk about your team. I don't know your team personally, but I know you have a team. I see you on social media, your tossed team. Yeah. And so you're using, I mean, I can just see from like what I read from your posts, you're doing those very same things. You're building that team. You're establishing, like helping people learn what that looks like and how that work goes. Yeah, I hope so. And I I uh, think a lot about my doctoral advisor, who's Nancy Heath at McGill University. I feel like a lot of the ways I approach mentorship and building a we called it our, we called it a lab because we were in mm-hmm. EdSec, but called yeah. it a team. A lot of ways I approach mentorship and building a team around our projects is was really informed by by her and the way she approached her mentorship. The the impact that 
our mentors have on us and our instructors have on us is pretty powerful. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm thinking more and more about that as, you know, I'm moving into this next phase. I'm, I am on this seasoned edge, right? I'm in my 10th year in higher education. So you kind of aren't yeah. early career anymore. So kind of thinking about what, what that legacy is and what, what my contribution is into the field yeah. now, to my instructors and my future teachers. Yeah. yeah. It is, it is strange when people, when I hear that I'm mid-career, I'm always just like, am I? Right. What is that? I, mean, I guess I am technically, but it feels, uh, it feels like you transition into that somehow and I'm right. not totally prepared for. <laughs> right. I didn't get the instruction manual. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Darn it. I wish I did. Okay. Well, so I want to be very uh, respectful of your time. And I want to, I always wrap up these conversations with three questions. And I ask everybody, so they're not rapid fire. I say I'm not Brene Brown and I can't aspire to that Mm -hmm. level of greatness, but I am curious what or who inspires you? I will give a kind of a what and a who. Um, So what is words? I am, uh, very moved by words in all kinds of ways. Like I really like quotes. I really like the power of like single words. I really yes. like listening to people speak. I really like reading and thinking about what words mean. I joked before that if I just was left to my own devices to just get tattoos constantly, I'd probably just get like words and quotes all over my body. And it would be like, I don't know if you remember the movie Memento where he like tattooed things because he yes. lost his memory every day. I'm like, I'd end up looking like that. Just words everywhere all over my body. <laughs> um, so I'm very inspired by words. And the who is not a specific person, but although I can probably put names to it, but I'm going to give a, a category of who. Sure. I think I've been very inspired since being a high school student and really directed a lot of the way I thought in high school and why I ended up going into religious studies and was drawn Mm -hmm. to that kind of thinking. And a lot of the work that I've done since then is social advocates, folks who have really been at the forefront of community-based advocacy and more large-scale civil rights advocacy and really inspired, you know, by their words, of course, but by the way people stand up for hard things and do hard things for the betterment of their own lives and the lives of people around them and the lives of people too, who will come after us. I like that. Yes. I like that. I'm going to capture that and hang on to it. Cause I also am a big <laughs> lover of words. And so everything that meaning in there, I'm going to hang on to that and be thinking about it the rest yeah. of the day. So thank you for that. Second question uh, worded similarly, but differently on purpose. Who is an educator who's influenced you? And influence can be like positive influence, somebody that you wanted to maybe emulate versus a non-example kind of an influence. Who's an educator who's influenced you? Two, I have two people, one from uh, school age and one from um, adulthood, from grad school. So um, the first person is my second grade teacher. I honestly do not know her first name. Her name's Mrs. Cowan. That's all I remember from well, being a, yes, you a seven and eight year old. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very strong memories of certain projects we did in her class. We did one, we did a lot of projects where we got to really be, got to learn something 
And then the end product was us really sharing out that expertise. And I remember one very vividly, we did like a dinosaur exhibit and we like set up our class like a museum and everyone made their own display on the dinosaur that they did research on. We did like, these were guided research projects we did at a second grade level. And I remember like we had to wear like nice clothes and we had a name tag during our museum day (laughs) and people came in. I don't even remember if it was parents who came or just other classes. I just remember that we got to present like a poster basically um, on our dinosaur and answer questions about it. I mean, I just remember that being so influential and like my enjoyment, not only of learning stuff, but then talking to people about the things I learned and answering questions and presenting, like having the stage (laughs) of being able to say, hey, listen, all these things that I I can tell you about. So she would be one just in her, her approach. And I thought of as a teacher, when I was teaching myself, I thought of her too, of these like really cool things we did. And then I would say the other influential teacher was, I mentioned her before, was the, the late Carol Connor. When I met, she was at Florida State University, and she she moved institutions after that. But when I worked with her, I I just learned so much. She was so giving of her time. I learned a lot about research. I learned a lot about the kind of education research I wanted to do. I don't know why I'm getting like tearing up thinking about her, but um, I think the uh, the main thing I learned from her was that you can be an exceptional researcher. And also an exceptionally kind person. Yes. Um, That's why you're tearing up. She has had an impact on you. She's influenced you professionally and personally. Like the kind of person you want to be. And that is wonderful. And you should always tear up when you think about her and you talk about (laughs) her. And you should share that story. Because that's really the power of it. It's that connection that we make. And she's given you that lifelong gift. That's pretty fantastic stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I, love and not, it. I mean, I know many other kind people in our field, but of course, it was the first time where I really felt like this person is just outstandingly kind mm-hmm. to everyone they meet, mm-hmm. treats everyone from the participants in her projects to her students to her RAs to her colleagues, all with this deep level of respect and kindness. That is something we could all strive to do a little better. I love that. Yes. Okay. So um, that personal professional is kind of a nice segue to our last question. So recognizing that we are lifelong learners, you know, we're never going to know everything, but we're constantly learning and growing and, and kind of evolving as people. What are you reading or learning I've switched because some people are like, I don't have time to read. But what are you reading or learning, (laughs) (laughs) both professionally and personally? Yes. So personally, I'll start with, I read a lot and I read all kinds of books. So I read, I was thinking about like, what book will I mention? Because I read a lot of, (laughs) um, you know, like easy to read, like rom-com level fiction, which, you know, are great, like extremely, I always get offended when people criticize the book. I'm like, this is good writing. Like these people are excellent writers. Um, But I was thinking in the last. Lighter brain work. Yeah, it is. It feels the equivalent of like watching TV to me. So I like Mm -hmm. can just get into it. And, but I thought since the start of this year, which of the books I read kind of would I recommend the most? And I read probably the first week of January, a book called What's Mine and Yours by uh, Naima Coster. It is a book that follows the story. So I, it's a really 
it's a really deep dive into sort of family dynamics Ooh. and how people's experiences and perceptions of the world shape the way that they parent and mm-hmm. the types of things that they they do or prioritize with with their own kids. And it follows, it kind of balances back and forth between two mothers who are kind of on the opposite sides of um, a battle over school integration, over racial integration in a local mm-hmm. high school. Okay. Um, so it is a really interesting dive into family dynamics and race and privilege and how all of this plays out. Yeah. Okay, I'm adding that to my list for sure. That sounds like a really interesting read. Yeah, it was great. Okay. All right. So professionally, what are you reading? I read a lot of articles. So I was thinking of what <laughs> books I'm currently reading. I'm currently reading a book. I've like skimmed through multiple chapters and I'm like working through it. A book called The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman, who is, and Don Norman is a cognitive sci- a scientist and a usability engineer. Okay. And it is a book on um, human-centered design. And it does kind of overlap into, in our world, in thinking about universal design and Mm -hmm. um, what that means. Mm -hmm. But it's really focused on things, unlike the design of of tools and systems and Mm -hmm. things that people use in their everyday and how we often do not fully consider the the psychology of of humans. And when when things are designed, um, you know, to work for for anyone in general, but then also to work for like a a more diverse group of people as well who may approach and think about things differently. And so this book was recommended to me um, in the fall semester by by someone who I was talking about my work on on database decision making. And and my colleague and I are are working toward developing tools to support teachers' database decision making. And he recommended this book as a, a, that would be interesting. And inform our thinking. And so that sounds like a good complement to what you're doing. Oh, wow. Okay. Two yeah. things to add to my reading list. I love that. I love to get new yeah. ideas. I'll add a third book that, please, I, please do. that you, um, I feel like you probably have read or maybe not, or at least heard of it, but the book Demystifying Disability by Emily Ladau. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have read this already. I started using it in my, uh, I teach a, a first year seminar with students who are students from across campus. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a seminar on disability advocacy. And so I'm, I'm rereading it now as we're, we're working through it together and talking about it. And it's a, a very accessible and action oriented book about, you know, building understanding about disability and talking about things that sometimes people don't ask about because they feel uncomfortable. That is a good one. I It's been long enough ago, but I need to reread it and relearn some things. So, okay. Thanks for adding to my shelf. I appreciate that. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. So we have just a few minutes left. I want to give you an opportunity to kind of share um, about different projects that you're working on, or if there are resources you would recommend to our listeners, I do try to post things and web links into our show notes. So like I'll include your faculty page. Mm -hmm. Um, If I can figure out how to tag your TOSC team social media, I will do that as well. And then I'll put your book recommendations, but what else can I, can I share for you? Yeah. Yeah. So we have, so my team does have an Instagram that's at TOSC team and you we encourage folks to follow that. We post cool things, I think. 
and fun I things so too. too I have a I have a professional website that's uh, my name.com, jessicatoss.com, okay. where um, a lot of a lot of our project resources can be found. Okay. One of my projects we'll be having more things coming out in future, but one of my projects is at the stage of development where we do have a lot of things we've developed that are are now available. And so that is project expert that I mentioned before. Yes. And we have a YouTube channel, which I think is, um, you can link in there. I can send it to you to put the show notes. I think it's youtube.com slash at project underscore expert. But we have, as part of the program that we developed working with teachers, we have this like a video repository of mini training modules. So they're about 10 to 15 minutes on average. And they're focused on very specific, different aspects of data-based instruction. So using data to inform uh, teaching. And so we have those videos. And then we also have a series of five CBM training videos using Dibble's eighth edition formal reading fluency measure. And we were, we, um, administered the the CBM or f- with students and then recorded it. And so people can watch the video. We have a package to download with it. So you can score along with the video and then you can actually check your scoring against an answer key. So we, as we were going through our own program, we found a need to have these sort of videos that people can work through on their own just to practice administering mm-hmm. these CBMs. I love gathering those for the classes that I teach too. So I'm, I'm totally going to yeah. borrow them and use them in my classes. Right. So that's wonderful. Okay. Well, I know that we're running short on time. So I just want to say thank you. I really appreciate this time and learning more about you and your story. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I am beyond grateful for this conversation with a fellow lover of words Thank you to Jessica Tost for sharing her story, making educational interventions better, and for being an exceptional educator and exceptionally kind person. I'm grateful to Jason Gorn for producing this podcast. I'm grateful for the multitude of friends, family, and colleagues who support and promote our work. This includes you. I am grateful for you. Please take a moment to subscribe to or follow our happy little podcast and leave us a five-star review. Those are really fun to read. Until our next time to think aloud together, stay curious. Stay curious.